Hi, I'm Marcus Dip Silas. And I'm Jaffif Chu. And you're listening to the Dip Chu Podcast. On the Dip Chu Podcast, we host honest conversations about faith and church. We also speak to guests from around the world and explore what it means to follow Jesus. We're excited to be on this journey of listening and learning. And we hope that you are too. Hello. After an unexpected hiatus of seven months, we're back today with another episode of the Dipchu Podcast. Today's episode is part two of our conversation with public theologian, professor of ethics, and co-founder of the Neighbor Love Movement in Ethiopia, Dr. Andrew DeCourt. We had a couple of audio issues while recording this podcast, so we apologize in advance. Andrew has a lot of good things to say, so we hope that the audio issues will not become a hindrance to your listening experience. As you were talking about what was happening in Ethiopia when you and your co-founder, Dr. Takelain, came to the neighbor love movement was seeing kind of the dehumanization, desensitizing of of people against other people, right? I was 12 when the movie Hotel Rwanda came out. I remember watching it as an early teenager and then watching it again years later um, and then doing a case study on the Rwandan genocide in a, a church and developmental strategies class. We were looking at you know what caused some of these issues and and it really struck me that it was mostly christian brother against christian brother right it was the christian hutus against the christian tutsis and they were slaughtering each other what you just mentioned about you know the words that we use to describe other people whether we talk about them as you know dogs or or snakes or hyenas right or evil spirits you know it really removes us from the person from the the image of god the bearer of the image of god that they are and from that i came across this book reconciling all things by chris rice and emmanuel katangole and they went into rwanda after the rwandan genocide to kind of look at what it would take for reconciliation to happen you know sometimes we talk about wanting to do these things. We want to love our neighbor. And yet we cannot help but acknowledge that our neighbor might have sinned against us. Oftentimes it's more true that we have sinned against our neighbor, right? But in that sense, like if there is this very present tragedy that requires reconciliation uh, and forgiveness before we step into that with, with some of the conflict that's going on, I've read a post from your Facebook and the people responding in the comments and you know some of them are quite dismissive of of the plight of people in suffering because oh they did something to us years ago right when they were in power they treated us poorly so now this is happening to them it's kind of like this is this is the Lord's justice in a way I don't really know the question or the word to that question but can you kind of see like what I'm getting at like how do we meet that especially in a place where you know you want to encourage neighbor love you want to encourage someone to love their neighbor and then all they can see is the hurt and the pain and and then it requires reconciliation first but how do we even attempt that Mm -hmm. yeah 
It's an extremely important question. You know, the first time we're commanded to love our neighbor in the Bible is in Leviticus 19.18. And it's really striking to me that before we read the words, love your neighbor as yourself, and then love the foreigner as yourself, Mm. there's something that comes right before it. It says, do not hold a grudge against your neighbor or seek revenge. And that's an incredible realism and honesty that our relationships are broken and that we may have causes to resent one another, to hold grudges against one another, and to seek revenge against one another. Mm. And as you said, the heart of that uh, conflict is they have done bad things to us. Now it's, now it's their time to suffer. And this is a very common pattern in human, uh, the human brain and in human behavior to mirror what people have done to us. So if they say angry words or insulting words, we say it back. If they seek to intimidate us when we get power, we want to intimidate them back. Uh, If there has been exclusion or displacement or killing, when we achieve power, we may feel like, okay, it's our turn now Mm. to use our power so that they can feel what we have felt. And it's powerful to me that the command of neighbor love in the teachings of Moses is preceded by this command to uproot grudges Mm. and the desire for revenge. And this is extraordinary, extraordinarily challenging internal and cultural work because we so easily build our sense of personal identity around the pain we have suffered, and the harms that have been done to us. And we also easily build and mobilize our collective identity around what our group Mm. has suffered and our opposition to those enemies who need to be punished for what we have suffered. So neighbor love um, doesn't hide from this. It's not some fuzzy feelings and happy thoughts that says, oh, everything is fine. Let's all just get along. The soil of neighbor love is this challenge mm-hmm. that we have broken relationships. We have broken histories. We have resentments and grudges. There is the desire for revenge inside of us. And we need to start by naming it and confronting it. Mm-hmm. And in the Rwandan case, Um, There's an extraordinary documentary called As We Forgive that I encourage everyone to watch. And this documentary traces the story of a few Rwandan women whose families were literally murdered by their literal neighbors, Mm. by men that they had known. They, they, They were family friends. And these men killed their family members. And this documentary traces the journey of how these women first just were able to see the faces of these men. Imagine how difficult it would be to simply stand in the presence or sit in the presence of someone who has literally murdered your family members. Imagine the fear, the grief, the anger. And then the next step was sitting and allowing these people to confess what they had done. Now, imagine the incredible courage it would be required to open your ears and to hear someone say to you, I committed a terrible evil. I killed your sister. I killed your brother. 
I killed your mother with my own hands. And then imagine the extraordinary challenge and courage required to move into the capacity to say, what you did was evil and wrong, but I forgive you. I choose to release the evil thing that you have done and hold on to you as a precious child of God. I choose to surrender the pain that you have caused me and to embrace your enduring value as a person. That is extremely hard work. Um, but as we forgive shows how some very courageous, ordinary women made these choices to uproot those grudges and that desire for revenge and to replace that with a love for even the killers of their family that enabled community to start. And it's really powerful how these men end up actually helping these women rebuild their, their physical homes. Mm. And so the killers of their family become contributors to their future through practical service. Um, and I, and I just like to note that moving beyond the individual level, of course, it's important for us to have open dialogue because many of us are going to disagree about what is the source of, of the grudge. How do we interpret our history? What are the sources that we're using? What are the facts that we're basing it upon? Hmm. Is there dissent and disagreement about how we tell this narrative? We know that our narratives define how we understand ourselves and our self-understandings define our relationships with other people. We need to meet and talk with one another and say, this is how I understand this history. How do you understand this history? Hmm. And that first act of mutual understanding will reveal deep disagreements. <laughs> and those deep disagreements then need to be met with, okay, how can we cultivate the empathy to listen to one another and see, okay, I can see where your side of the story has some factual evidence. Yeah. I can see where it has some incredibly moving emotional power. And I care about your story. And vice versa for the other side to do the same. And then for us to start to say, okay, we've talked about our past. We've wrestled with how we interpret it and our differences and disagreements. Now, how do we move forward into a future where we're safe, mm -hmm. where we respect one another, where we share our resources in a fair manner, where we set up guardrails so that the stealing or the killing that is part of our story doesn't happen again? This is this dialogue is hard, hard work, and many of us don't have the patience and courage for it. And so I'd say neighbor, neighbor love is challenging these dehumanizing mm -hmm. patterns of conflict to say, slow down. And we need to uproot these grudges and these desires for revenge that are inside of us as individuals and as a community, and then start moving into these practices of dialogue confession, forgiveness, imagining a shared future together. And I would just ask all of our listeners right now, mm. am I willing to look at the grudges inside of myself, the bitterness, the, de the desire for revenge? I would ask mm. uh, church leaders, are we willing to say, what are the resentments inside of our congregations? Mm. And how is our preaching and practice uh, perpetuating these boundaries that can lead us to say, yeah, those people are snakes? Mm. or hyenas or dogs or in the Rwandan case they're cockroaches mm. um, 
And are we actively preaching and teaching and praying Mm. to call our people to say, let's work on that grudge. Let's work on that desire Mm. for revenge. And let's move beyond these patterns that are fueling Mm. conflict. As you mentioned, Rwanda was overwhelmingly Christian. Germany was overwhelmingly Christian. There were churches everywhere, and many, many people were attending them. So we shouldn't think that if we live in some kind of religious society that we're we're somehow safe from this. We need to do this hard work of saying, what are we preaching? What are we practicing? How is our community actively overcoming these dehumanizing patterns to be healers and reconcilers? That's such a, a timely and appropriate word for this season. I think even, you know, some of our listeners are from America. And as, you know, you were, you were sharing, I'm just thinking about the, the conservative and liberal divide even. Uh, you know, I have more friends on the conservative side than the liberal side. And so I hear all these statements. I mean, of course, if we want to go to the the loudest ones or, or the, the most outrageous ones is anything that is coming out of Q and on that talks about um, Democrats or liberals as a, a cabal of pedophilic um, infant virgin sacrificing blood drinking people, right? Like, the, I mean, that's let's go to that extreme. That's the extreme that exists. But even even some of the ways that you know, we, we hear people talk about um, godless liberals, right? Or, you know, deplorable uh, uh, um, uh, Trump supporters. Like like you were saying, like the language is, it's, I mean, speech does something, right? Words aren't just words, they do something. And then I think about the times that I've heard even friends of mine, close friends of mine, you know, uh, when we talk about, um, or when when we had talked about the refugee crisis, or you know, the Syrian civil war, or the movement of terrorism, and flipping words of, well, we should just bomb them all, right? Just drop bombs on them. You know, they did it to us, and and almost like there's no separation in that moment, right? Like Muslim becomes a a general thing, versus well, no Syrians were on that plane that crash into the World Trade Center. Like, what are you talking about? You want to just blanket bomb Syria? Just to hear some of the things that followers of Jesus are are able to say about other human beings, to remember that as Christians, we're not immune from hate. We're not immune from racism. We're not immune from xenophobia. We're not immune from homophobia. We're not immune from any of these things that drive people to go into massage parlors and and shoot up Asian women. We're not immune from from people going into uh, uh, um, Planned Parenthood clinics and and shooting people up. Like, we're not immune from the very acts of hate that Jesus invites us to turn away from. That's so scary to me, though. I mean, like, I'm I'm having chills here. Like, where... 
kind of like where panicking like where are the guardrails like what are the guardrails like it's a slippery slope because when we when we engage in that we, we kind of lose sight of who we are who god is and, and who the other is you know this is an ancient challenge for us and i'm, I'm getting ready to write an essay about peter that i'm thinking of calling the slow revolution and it's really fascinating that Peter was one of the very first disciples that Jesus called. We know that he was part of the inner circle of Jesus' disciples, and many of us see him as the key leader. Mm. Um, and then on the day of Pentecost, Peter is there. He's filled with the Holy Spirit. He's speaking in tongues. He's giving the first sermon to uh describe what is happening with this extraordinary mm -hmm. miracle of God's power. Mm -hmm. And then we know that Peter is so powerful that his, his shadow is healing people in the streets. So people are like coming out in the streets just to be touched by Peter's shadow. Mm -hmm. But what do we discover in Acts 10? Mm -hmm. We discover that Peter is still ethnically biased. Mm -hmm. He doesn't want to go into the house of a Gentile mm -hmm. named mm -hmm. Cornelius because he sees him as unclean mm -hmm. or as dirty. Mm -hmm. In fact, he thinks it's against God's law mm -hmm. for him to step foot into this sinner's house, to this yeah. ethnic and religious other's house. Now, this is terrifying to me, yeah. brothers. This is Peter who spent three years with Jesus. Mm -hmm. This is Peter who was an eyewitness of the resurrection. This is Peter who was there at the miracle of Pentecost. This is Peter who's Shadow is healing the sick, and yet still inside of Peter is mm. this deep bias, mm. this deep prejudice against certain kinds of people. Yeah. And it's extraordinary that in Acts 10, when Peter actually breaks through this barrier after he has a vision from God, he says, mm. now I know mm. that I shouldn't call anyone unclean, but I should judge people by their character. That's really striking and, and frightening to me that he says, now I know. Didn't Paul call him out too? In Galatians Later? chapter yeah. 2. For also, not wanting to eat with the Gentiles. I confronted Peter to his face for his raw hypocrisy, and mm. he was leading other church leaders astray. Even Barnabas, who mm. we know was one of the key church leaders um, from the very beginning, you know, Barnabas is one of the guys who was giving away his property mm -hmm. to the poor, mm -hmm. and Barnabas was one of the first apostles. So the point is, we need to look in the mirror. Mm -hmm. Even yeah. central leaders like, like Peter and Barnabas, from the very beginning, who spent mm -hmm. time with Jesus, could still be deeply affected by bias, mm -hmm. prejudice, maybe even disgust. Yeah. And we see that still today. So mm. we need to look in the mirror and experience a more radical self-honesty about what is going on inside of us. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And until we do that, we're going to continue to see the violence that you just described. Mm. Mm. You know, with this neighbor love movement, you're not the face of the movement, right? No. Okay. Is your colleague, your co-founder, the face of the movement? He is. Dr. Tekalin is the, the primary face and voice mm. of the neighbor love movement. I mean, this is an honest reflection for both Japheth and myself. And, um, you know, we've seen a lot of 
ministries. We've been a part of many movements, prayer movements, ministries, churches named after a certain individual, uh, um, you know, with a focus around a person's gifts or a person's talents or a person's specialties. I think this is the first time I'm hearing that a co-founder to a movement has chosen to, to intentionally not be the face of the movement. It kind of hits a place of, you know, my own pride. I mean, our podcast is called the Dip Chew Podcast. It's our names, you know. We are the faces of it. We talk about ourselves a lot. What is it like to not be the face of something that you are so passionate about, you work so hard for, you know, to, to in, in a sense, carry that, Jonathan kind of role where you you I, I've seen you post about your colleague like your your glowing admiration for him and cooperation with him um yeah to, to kind of be that Jonathan for a David like what is what is it like I'm not interested in building things about Andrew Decourt mm. uh trying to build one's ego one's status one's reputation is tempting mm. It's completely uncreative and mm. it is small and it's part of what's wrong with the world. Mm. Wanting people to be more focused on ourselves rather than life-giving relationships of listening mm. and trust mm. and mutual admiration mm. and shared decision-making and cooperation and seeking to use your opportunities to uh, elevate the gifts and wisdom of another person. Um, so this is a privilege for me. And you know, we're working in the Horn of Africa. And this is a context that knows colonialism and domination. Now, Ethiopia is extremely proud that it was never colonized by the Europeans. But the whole region, the whole continent is... Uh, emerging out of this legacy of colonization and mm -hmm. Ethiopia itself has uh, its own legacies of hierarchy and domination. Mm -hmm. And these evils come out of the idea that I am superior or that we are superior. We're, we're morally superior. We're more virtuous. Mm -hmm. We're intellectually superior. We're smarter. Hmm. Uh, we're physically stronger and healthier. Hmm. And if you could just be like us, you would be civilized, enlightened, modern, progressive. Hmm. Now, this is a narrative of egoism. Hmm. It's a narrative of domination. Hmm. And the neighborhood movement exists to show that there's another better way. Hmm. And so it is a joy for Dr. Takalane and myself and my wife, Lily, who's an Ethiopian, and our other Ethiopian partners to work together, to listen together, to make decisions together, to discern what is wise and good and helpful. And for Takalane to be the primary speaker, the primary author, uh, the primary leader who knows his context with such brilliance, mm -hmm. who is so fluent in relevant language and communication mm. um, and who looks and sounds like other people in this context. Mm. Um, so we, we are intentionally seeking to abandon this idea that 
some other person, maybe with a lighter skin tone, is somehow wiser or better or stronger. We don't believe that. And Takalin um, and the other Ethiopians that we've worked with are brilliant and committed and creative and strong. Um, and so there's a real joy in me to discover that we can abandon these lies of superiority. You know, it's a lot of pressure. Yeah. To think that you always have to be better and stronger and wiser. Yeah. And it's just a pure lie. And mm. we can be neighbors, mm. people who are with and for one another, who are listening together, working together. And that's liberation. Mm. That's freedom. Rather than needing that relationships of high and low, better and worse, stronger mm. and weaker, we can have relationships of love and equality with mutual dignity. And that means that I'm constantly learning. Mm -hmm. I'm constantly growing. Mm. I'm constantly discovering more about what it means to be human and to be honest mm. and to love and serve. Mm. And so I feel extremely privileged to partner with Takalein. Mm. And I'm extremely happy that we're not uh, repeating these models of putting uh, a white Western mm. face at the center of something that's so much bigger, that's for everyone. Yeah, the implications that this can have for, for missions is, is huge. <laughs> you know, let me say something about that. When I was a professor at Wheaton College for a few years, I designed a program with my colleagues there called Authority Action Ethics Ethiopia. And the idea was to create an intercultural leadership program where students could ask, what is the meaning of leadership today? And how do we grow into better leadership? And I said, I will only lead students to Ethiopia if we study Ethiopia first. So we had a rigorous 16-week seminar where we were studying Ethiopian history and culture. And then when we came to Ethiopia for 18 days, I gave my students four assignments. I said, if you do these four things, you will have successfully completed this program. Be present. Be rooted right here in Ethiopia. Observe. Open your eyes and pay attention. Listen closely. Open your ears and listen as carefully as you possibly can. And the fourth was learn. See every single Ethiopian as your teacher. It could be a shoe shiner. It could be a housemaid. Or it could have been uh, the, the father of Ethiopian jazz or influential religious and political leaders learn from everything, from everyone. And I told them, we're not coming here to teach. We're not yeah. coming here to preach. Mm. We're not coming here to try to change culture. We're coming here to be present, to observe, mm. to listen, and to learn, and to let mm -hmm. Ethiopians mm. teach and inspire us. And I think that this model needs to become more influential for missions today. Our primary mission is not to impose and to control our primary mission is to build relationship and to learn so that we can serve one another across yeah. boundaries. Yeah. Uh, so I'm really, I'm really grateful for this program at Wheaton College and how we said, you're going to go to, you're going to study Ethiopia before you go. You're not allowed mm -hmm. to go if you don't study first. Mm -hmm. um, and when we actually do go, you know, you're, you're not going to, you know, build something or give money or preach sermons, although those things are fine you're going to be with Ethiopians and to learn from Ethiopians and take rigorous notes mm. and be inspired by Ethiopian leadership. So I think that this is a, a model that could be helpful for more missions today. That's part of some of our reflections here where we 
we talk about anglophilic tendencies, especially in Southeast Asia, and and receiving expressly white theology, white context, white commentary on on society as truth, as as whole and absolute truth, and then failing to connect with our own people because our training did not prepare us to meet with our own people. Yeah. Well, Andrew, I'm I'm so happy uh, that we got to connect. Um, I'm so glad that I stumbled upon your Facebook post and and that we got to, to hear from you today. We are truly inspired. I think more than inspired. I think we are we are challenged to to love our neighbors as ourselves um, and to practice the the bodily holistic present way of loving our neighbors. Yeah, and I'm excited to uh, to perhaps one day read your book that's going to come out. <laughs> yeah, The Slow Revolution. It'll start at least as an essay. You can you can find that at andrew-decourt.com. I've got a weekly newsletter there. That'll be coming out soon. But brothers, it's a privilege, Japheth. Marcus, mm. thank you so much for creating this platform, for asking these thoughtful questions, and for so generously extending hospitality to me. Um, let us become more thoughtful, mm. uh, yeah. self-aware, creative yeah. followers of Jesus. Yeah. We have nothing to fear yeah. when we surrender yeah. uh, these walls of self-preservation, yeah. these walls of status. When we can yeah. hear one another, when mm. we can see one another, mm. uh, when we can touch one another and open mm. our hearts to one another, we are truly free. Yeah. So I feel a deep yeah. sense of gratitude to see your faces and to hear your voices and be part of this conversation. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for being with us. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Whoa. Yeah. Boom, baby. Boom, 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 boom. (laughs) (laughs) Well, dude, I felt like my heart just jumped alive Mm. when he was talking about, you know, loving God and loving our neighbors as we have to love ourselves. And Mm. I think it's, I mean, I don't know whether we want to do the reflection right now, but I mm. feel like our heart comes alive when we start focusing of, about other people than ourselves. Yeah. I know at least for yeah. myself, that's true. Like mm. whenever I'm in the mission field, like my heart comes alive. Mm. And I didn't know why until the talk with Andrew, like the reason why my heart comes alive and I'm in missions is because I'm not focused on myself. Mm. <laughs> to clarify, like knowing you, Japheth, you in missions is mm. not that you are there to give people orders. You mm. very yeah. much integrate with how people yeah. live and how people, you know, you 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 follow the example of the people on the ground, and, and mm. that is very. It's a very different kind of missions than we're used to of going mm. in giving orders, doing a Bible program. Mm. Like you preach and you teach but you also live among yeah. the people that you, yeah. you do missions with yeah and that's what makes your heart come alive correct just doing life with them just like just loving them genuinely yeah Woo-hoo. I, I want to draw this to a Malaysian context real yeah. quick before we go um, something that's always heavy on my heart is um the way we treat foreigners, the way we yeah. treat um, 
immigrants, uh, migrants, refugees, refugees, right? yeah. Especially, I think the way that I have seen Malaysians, particularly Christians in general, treat um, people who serve us mm. in coffee shops, restaurants, who are not Malaysian. Mm. Um, they might be from Myanmar. They might be from Nepal. Mm. You know, security guards at condos, security guards in the mm. mall. Um, you know, um, house. Uh, 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 Mates, domestic help, um, mm. Indonesians, Filipino mates. Um, it's been a big source of grief for me over the years mm. to see especially Christians mistreat these people in our midst. Yeah. You know, I mean, yeah. I remember when we, you and I were in Nepal together mm-hmm. in 2016. And it was the first time that we met a Nepali doctor. Do you remember this? We were at the airport. Uh, was it a f- which 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 airport was this? We were delayed in mm, uh, yes. in Lumbini. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Was it the Be- one where we saw like the prime minister come in? Yes. Yeah. So the prime minister was flying into Lumbini, <laughs> and so we were delayed a few hours, and we were sitting down, and this very kind-looking older gentleman came mm. up and sat with us and started speaking with us. Mm. And showing us pictures, talking about the Prime Minister, talking about mm. politics, talking about all these things. I remember you turned to me and said something to the effect of that you have never seen or known of Nepalis to have so much confidence. Mm. Do you remember that? No, but keep okay. going. I remember <laughs> this, yeah. So you, I, you, had, you said something along the lines of it was kind of a, I think, an epiphany or realization for you that you'd only met mm. Nepalis in Malaysia who who had to leave Nepal and come to Malaysia because mm. they needed to work, right? Mm. So they worked as security guards, you know, lower education, maybe no education, um, can't really speak English mm. or no English at all. Um, seemingly more simple-minded people. Mm. And we had spent time that 10-day trip in Nepal, we spent time with yeah. uh, the lowest caste. So we had spent time with people who were of that category, right? Correct. Low, um, yeah. Hard labor, sk- um, uh, skilled labor, not skilled labor, unskilled labor, uh, people mm. who travel to different places to do construction, to be mm. um, serve waiting staff in, in mm. restaurants and all these things. And you had very, um, kind of like a, you had a realization that your exposure to Nepalese in Malaysia had shaped your view of an entire nation, which when we met this Nepali doctor was challenged because you had never seen mm. a Nepali person so imbue- imbued with confidence. Mm. I say that because it stayed with me all these years, um, even though you don't remember. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because... We don't treat the Nepali people in our country well. Mm, yeah, yeah, that's true. I've seen like, I mean, we, we, you know, whether it's going to Bible study or, or groups or whatever, I've seen Christians yell at the security guards mm. in the condos, in the malls. I, I mean, every other week you have a video of some Malaysian beating up a Nepali guard because they 
told them not to park in a certain place or ask mm. for their IC or you know like mm. yelling at them, shouting at them. And I, I'm, I'm, I'm convicted on behalf of the nation. I'm convicted on behalf mm. of like our brothers and sisters in faith. But I think we really need to extend this neighbor love. Mm. Wow. Hard towards yeah. the immigrants and the yeah. migrant workers. Immigrants. Exactly right here as well. Yeah. 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 I mean, my 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 um connection and interaction mm. with migrant workers is is probably higher than. Mm. The average person, because yeah. you know, my parents' church, we, um, we had a a, yeah. a, a Nepali connection. We also yes. had a Vietnamese migrant fellowship meeting in yeah. our church facility. Yeah. So my interaction might be more. So I I I have a few friends. I would consider them friends. You mm. know, who are Vietnamese, who are um, Nepali, um, who are my who are migrant workers in Malaysia. Mm. Who I have heard very tragic and sad stories. Mm. Yeah. You know of how they are treated by Malaysians yeah. and specifically by Christians. Yeah, 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 yeah. So I think that's that's what I wanted to draw it to is that mm. this neighbor love practice. It's so inspiring. We should do it, and it should begin yes. with how we treat the immigrants and migrants in around us. Yeah, right. absolutely. Mm. And I mean, I just want to throw this in there that. I love what you and your family have been doing all these years for your community, um, for your, for your church members, for refugees. <laughs> um, for me, that gives you guys authority to say what you you know that you guys say. You know, um, I I know sometimes like when people maybe just see what is posted publicly on Facebook, they don't know the backstory. They don't know <laughs> um, the love that you guys have, that you have for people. And I just would really want to point that out. Like, I know you, Marcus, and I know that you genuinely love and care for people. And that's sometimes not easily seen in a... Because in a, in a, <laughs> I'm too controversial. In a public <laughs> Facebook post. <laughs> But just for yeah. the record, like, because yeah. I know you, I, I know that your heart is so, so large. Mm. Hopefully not biologically. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Jacob. Yeah. I mean, I don't do it for that, for, for yeah. those eyes anyway. I think yeah. if people cannot consider my words, mm. um, then they, they have no business. Like, I don't really care if they consider yeah. my actions. Yeah. Um, yeah. But yeah, I, I think... Yeah, you're right. Like I, I was talking with a friend a few days ago saying that, you know, I think I do have some credibility speaking to some of these issues because mm. I'm still in it, mm. right? I'm in the church. I'm serving the local body. Yeah, and exactly. at the same time, I'm telling people this is not sustainable. Yeah, I'm serving yeah. migrant communities and then I'm telling people we need to do more. Yeah. I'm serving refugee communities and then I'm telling people we need to stop seeing them the way that we've been seeing them as lazy, mm. as trying to live easier lives. You know, mm. I mean, the entire war-torn countries, people are leaving and mm. and our response is, oh, why are we helping these refugees? Mm. Right? I mean, um, a contemporary of ours um, who leads a refugee ministry has received death threats for helping wow. refugees because Thank Malaysians gosh. are like, why you don't mm. help Malaysians first? Why you help refugees? Mm. You know, when she pointed out that 
um, that, that there were COVID issues in detention centers. She mm. was um, called in for questioning by the police. Yeah. Right? She got death threats on yeah. Facebook. People mm. sent her messages on Instagram telling her to kill herself, telling mm. her that they wanted to rape her. Why do men always threaten, threaten women with sexual acts of violence? Mm. It's so petty. <laughs> it's petty and... and it's, I mean, it's, it's downright demonic. Mm. But yeah. yeah, you know, so... so we, we need to do better. Yeah. The church needs to do better in this regard. Thanks for listening to the Dip Chew Podcast. Our guest today was Dr. Andrew DeCourt, and you can find out more about him at www.andrew-decourt.com. Original music for the podcast is created and recorded by John Dip Silas. Tune in next week for a Lectio Divina episode. Have a great weekend ahead.